Capital Six Theatres is situated on the corner of Yates and Blanchard in the heart of downtown Victoria. Capital Six Theatres features luxury recliner seating. You can reserve your seat in advance and choose where you want to sit. No more waiting in lines. To reserve your seat now, visit capital6.ca. That's C-A-P-I-T-O-L 6 dot C-A. We would like to acknowledge, with respect, that the University of Victoria stands on the land of the Lekwungen and Wissanich people. We'd like to thank the elders and chiefs of these territories for continuously allowing us to reside here, although many of us were not invited to do so. As a radio station and media outlet, CFUV was founded in colonial contexts and still continues to operate in those contexts. Welcome to You in the Ring. I'm Max Collins, filling in for regular host Salma Isan. Here at You in the Ring, we share alternative perspectives on stories from our campus. We feature interviews with students, faculty, and other members of our community to hear what UVic has to say. Have you ever thought about just how much money the University of Victoria brings in? Think about the amount you pay in tuition. Now think about how many students you see walking around campus every day. Each person pays the same amount of tuition as you do, if not more. How much money does that amount to? And have you thought of any sponsorships or partnerships that the university may be profiting off of? Stop me if your head is already spinning. When it gets down to it, UVic is first and foremost an academic institution. The main purpose of this government-funded school is to teach people. And if it didn't teach people, it wouldn't exist. But... It's not difficult to imagine that with tuition costs ever rising, the university must be profiting a little bit off of the education it provides. And business is booming. UVic boasted $567 million in revenue in 2015, along with an increase of just over 100 students from 2015 to 2017. The university sends representatives to cities across the globe for new student recruitment, and they show no signs of stopping the influx of new students coming through the doors every year. Of course, the university needs a certain amount of money to pay staff and to maintain the university's facilities, but where does the rest of the money go if the number of students continues to rise? And who gets to decide that? In this episode, we look at UVic as not only a school, but a business. We sit down with the vice president of UVic's finances and operations team to learn more about spending and saving, and we speak to a lab assistant who is among one of the lowest earning employees on campus. That's all coming up. Stay with us. The first place to go when looking at the relationship between UVic, education, money, and entrepreneurship is the Department of Finance and Operations. When it comes to both resources and spending, one can look no further than the desk of Gail Gorill, Vice President of the Finance and Operations Department, to learn more about where UVic's funds are propagated. Anything from tuition, staff and work-study salary, employment, and financial planning for UVic's future are conversations that happen in the office of the Vice President of Finance and Operations. I sat down with Gail to ask a few questions that have been on the minds of your fellow students. In 
So my name is Gail Gorl. I'm the Vice President of Finance and Operations. And so I think with respect to this interview, I'm going to talk a little bit about how some of the some of the areas that I'm responsible for and how that impacts um, student life and uh, other activities on campus. I originally started out working as an accountant in one of the large accounting firms. So I did that in your traditional sort of audit area. Then I spent many years doing consulting work. So doing a lot of work helping various clients really and all that was about was understanding what are their needs how do I best understand their needs and then how do I provide support them to be able to move forward in the things that they need to do um, so I moved from there into working into the health sector for a little while in a sort of finance and business operations area I spent a little bit of time there in Calgary and then I moved to the University of Calgary and at University of Calgary I was responsible for some of the areas here but not all of them so in Calgary, my area of focus was primarily around finance and budget, um, whereas my role at UVic is much broader than that. So I've yes, I have responsibility for finance and budget, but I also have responsibility for many of the other operations on campus. So the things like facilities management, um, IT, human resources, campus security, um, and our sustainability and campus planning and, and those various activities. All right, so could you give a rough percentage of your work in finances versus human resources at UVic? I don't know, and I would say it really varies. So there'd be certain times of the years or are issues where I'm spending a lot more time on finance, but then there's other times where I'm spending a lot more time on other things. So for example, um, you know, with the, I'll just use an example of student housing that we're looking at. And, you know, I've been quite engaged looking at both the um, how do we support the capital development on that, how, working with student affairs on that, and how do we get the financing on it. So it really does. So how's your background in accounting carried over in your work at UVic, if at all? So as I mentioned, I started out in the accounting role, and I think I think because I do have that finance role here, having an understanding of finance and accounting is really, really important. I don't say that I do a lot of accounting right now, um, but I think understanding that is important. And I think the management consulting was very important because lots of times I find both at the university and other places, people have really good ideas and how do you help them take those really good ideas into uh, what do we need to do to make that happen? Um, how do we get to the point of being able to make decisions? Uh, the other thing is I've had a lot of experience working in public sector where it isn't just a bottom line. In fact, it's never a bottom line. It's always a question of how do you balance investments and returns, and oftentimes those investments aren't dollars, they're people in time, and those returns are not dollars. They're the quality of the education program that you deliver. It's the impact of the research that you have. So I've always enjoyed and been fortunate and have had a lot of experience looking at not those easy, you know, I take in this money and I spend this money and this is the bottom line and that's good and that's how I'm measuring. All right, so in regards to finances and human resources, is one part of your job more important than the other? Another good question, and I would say that on the one hand, if you don't have any money, you can't do anything. But if you don't have any people, it doesn't matter how much money you have. And if your buildings are falling down, it doesn't matter whether you have people or money. So for me, it's all about if we're gonna, if I'm going to be able to support the university delivering on its academic mission, then you need all of those things. And if we look at, for example, on our financial statements, 80% of our expenditures are for people. 
So it's really, really important that we can recruit and retain and support people. And on the other hand, you and I are sitting in a building. If we don't have buildings that work for us, it doesn't work either. So it is very much a balance. And I think if you spend too much focusing time on one to the detriment of the others, it's a problem. Okay. So I just want to re- like reiterate, you said that 80% of the funds that the university has goes towards people. I. The spins, yeah. Yeah. So like IE salaries? Salaries and benefits, yep. Okay, perfect. Yep. Um, so what are some decisions that the Department of Finance and Operations has over spending at UVic? It's interesting because everybody says, gee, you're the one with all the money, you make all the decisions, and that's actually not true. First of all, the way dollars get spent is a determination of priorities. What are the priorities? So I'm part of that team, but the priorities are really set by our board ultimately, and then the president and then the provost really saying, what are those priorities? And then once the priorities are set, then my role is to say, okay, here's the priorities. Well, do we have enough dollars to meet all those priorities? So I'll help influencing the when we can do those things. I'll help maybe influencing a little bit of the, you know, if we're going to change things or maybe do things a little bit differently or have some opportunities. But I'm not the one that makes those decisions on those actual allocations. The difference would be, for example, in some of the areas that I'm responsible for, I'll have a little bit more direct involvement in that. But really, it's more my job of of understanding what the priorities are and supporting the allocation, the resources consistent with the priorities. Mm -hmm. Can you say who has the main control over spending at UVic then? Um, So, I mean, ultimately it's the board and the president, but the vice president academic and provost leads a group of the senior leaders that we call integrated planning. And that integrated planning group will decide at a high level, what are the priorities and how are we going to allocate resources? Um, I mentioned to you already that 80% of our expenditures are actually for people. And so if you think about it, on the one hand, you'd say, gee, the university has lots of money. But if you think about how much of that money is invested in faculty and our staff, there's not a lot of money left over, actually. 20%. 20%. And if you look at that other 20%, uh, the big components in there, uh, I think the next largest item is student scholarships and bursaries. And those decisions are made within that group of here's the here's how we're going to allocate them, and then and then within student financial aid deciding how we're going to allocate those, and then things like utilities, library. So there's not a lot of flexibility in the dollars that we have. All right. So here's a question about priorities. We've been talking a little bit about them. So uh, with eighty percent of the expenditures going towards people and salaries, what positions do you prioritize, and why? And again, it comes back to a need. So for example, uh, with the, the provost would be looking at where are the needs, where are the student, you know, where are the students, where and between the vice president um, academic and the vice president research, where are research strengths? Where do we want to add um, resources there? How do we want to reallocate resources? Um, within some of the other areas, again, it's about need and about priority. Saying, what do we need? Do we have a growing pressure that we need to do? So for example, a while ago, we, we determined that we really both needed to and wanted to increase our ability to do composting on campus well and to really be doing a better job of sorting well then that takes resources and how do we we make sure that we do that so it really depends and it is very much driven by priorities um, set out by ultimately the the university strategic framework and then um, our development of our priorities every year 
Okay, so what you're saying is that the finance and operations department is more of like a watchdog than a delegator. That would be a component on the finance side, although if you talk about finance and operations, there's lots of different pieces in there, right? So if we look at facilities management, they're actually doing investments in the different facilities and they have a process of looking at that. So we'll actually evaluate and we'll say, where are our highest priorities? So we'll do an assessment of our roofs. And we'll say which one needs the most work on. And so um, it really depends. Within the actual finance area, it is more of a stewardship, ensuring that we're uh, the stewardship of the assets according to any requirements that came with it, compliance with our policies, and prudent financial management. But that's not just the role of finance to do that, right? That's everyone. Mm-hmm. That's everyone on campus. That we're all stewards. We're all we all need to make sure that we're using the resources in the best way possible because that's what we're about. How do we support students? How do we get the research done? How do we give back to the community? So when you're talking about everyone, are you saying like all of the uh, professors and faculty, or are you talking about the students should be the watchdogs as well? Um, you know that's a really interesting question too. So I think everyone has a different role, but we talked about for a minute ago about waste management, and I think students have a big role to play in making sure that we're you know we have we have requirements around um, not mixing garbage, and so I think students have a role to play there. Um, we have as we look at our sustainability and our reducing our energy consumption. We've had some amazing success where we've brought student teams in to help us find ways, identify ways to reduce energy reduction or to reduce energy, just as examples. So I think all of us, it's about how do we use the resources the best way that we can. And obviously, different people have different roles. So a dean, for example, is going to have a different role and responsibility than a faculty member. What role does the Department of Finances and Operations play when conversations about general spending at UVic come up? So we're certainly the ones that will help um, frame some of those conversations. So we'll be the ones that will provide, here's some information, here's some modeling around if we do this, this is what that translates into, doing some forecasting, uh, really trying to bring the best information possible to help good decision making. So that's a bit of our role. Um, So we will do that. And then obviously saying that, you know, here's the resources available. Here's the different options. Here's some alternatives. Here's some ways of maybe if we do some different things, we could either generate some additional dollars or have some efficiency. So those are all the areas that we would do. And then working with colleagues, making recommendations and making sure that those recommendations are well-founded. I think the other thing that the area does a lot of work on is understanding risks. So everything we're looking at, we're trying to say, and and again, not that that's something that we own, that's across the campus too, but we we tend to do more of that, looking at some of the risks and saying, okay, is that a risk that we're that, that's appropriate? Can we find ways to mitigate it? So for example, we'd be the ones looking at, you know, what, what insurance do we have? Should we have more insurance? Um, what internal controls do we have? Can we make those better? Have we done a good job of providing education? For people on campus can we do a better job what does that look like all right so let's talk about a conversation that i'm sure comes up quite a bit that directly affects students what i mean is tuition increases so how do conversations about tuition increases come about and what do those conversations look and sound like so certainly anytime we're going to change fees or we're going to increase fees we know that has an impact on students so we take that very seriously and we think about what are the impacts 
And so this would be a university conversation, not just within the Vice President of Finance and Operations area. So it's very much a joint looking across. And so those things would be everything from understanding impact. Um, and part of understanding impacts would be, do we have ways we can offset some of those impacts? So for example, if we're doing tuition increases, trying to understand, well, what's the impact that that might have on some of our more um, vulnerable student populations? And what does that mean, for example, in terms of increasing funding for bursaries? Mm-hmm. So we would do that. Uh, we obviously need to look and say, so what regulations or restrictions do we have? So for example, for domestic tuition, we're restricted on what we can increase. So the government sets out, here's the maximum increases that you can do. So obviously that's a big part. Not the same for international tuition. So international tuition, they don't set regulations and in fact expect that we won't be using public funds to support international students. Do you ever offset the cap on domestic tuition by increasing international tuition? No, I wouldn't say that. What I would say is, first of all, you know, because I was talking about what's the parameters and with which you'd increase. But the other thing is very much a need. So do we need the dollars? We don't just increase the dollars just just because we can. Um, we're really saying, um, what are the investments that we need to make? What are the drivers? How do we make sure that we're appropriately and equitably allocating those costs? So if I can use a different example, um, housing costs. Well, um, not every student gets to stay in housing. So would it be fair if you know we've got a student that lives off campus and they're paying to subsidize on-campus housing? That probably wouldn't be fair. So there we would be saying we expect that housing costs and the fees that we're charging to students would be um, sufficient to pay for the full cost of housing. And then if we have students that that's financially challenging for them, then we provide that in bursaries. We don't just reduce the cost of housing. Tuition's a little bit different because it's then all students, but even there saying um, what's the dollars that we need to, again, international, not domestic because we're restricted on domestic, but international, what's the dollars that we need to ensure that we've got a quality of program? Um, because what the last thing we want to do is having students coming here and they're not getting a quality program and they can't be successful because we're not providing appropriate supports. Um, So we're certainly doing that. And you know, what we will have is we will have two kinds of cost pressures. We'll have an inflationary cost pressures. So one of the things that we've been seeing over the last while, and unfortunately we don't see it changing anytime soon, is library costs going up. And we know that's really, really important, but costs are going up way more than inflation. So that would be an example of a cost pressure. We also have cases where we've got changing demands and needs. Um, An example I would use for that is health services for students. Um, We've got growing demands, you know, whether it's mental health or just whatever health services, we need to make sure that we make those investments. It's a growing need and it's something we need to do. And so that impacts all students. And so if by increasing our international tuition, we can ensure that we've got quality program for all of our students, then that's something that we want to do. So quality for those student support services and quality in the, in the classroom as well. All right. So seeing as providing for students is important, when did the voices of students come into conversations on spending? How would you explain to students, say, why tuition is increasing when students don't want to pay more? You know, I understand nobody wants to pay more. You know, if you said to me, would you prefer to pay less or more? I would say, "Mm, I'd like less, please. (laughs) 
Um, and that's that's just the nature of it. And so in some ways, that's a bit of an unfair question. I think if it's very much, if the question is, um, would you be pay- willing to pay this for this? Because if you're not willing to pay, then I'm not going to do that then that's a completely appropriate question. So if there's a choice on services and, you know, we'll make that, you know, we're ha- we want the input to say, should we offer it or not? Is it seen as a value? Then that's very much a conversation that we need to have. But if we're saying we're seeing cost pressures, we're seeing a need to invest in quality, we need to increase, well, then the conversation should be about, well, what are the most important things for you in terms of those supports, where are those supports missing? And if there are financial barriers, what's the best way of addressing those? So those kinds of questions, which is very different than a, would you like me to increase tuition? And you know, one of the other things that I think we would want to ask is, and we do ask is, are there things that we should think about when we do it? So a perfect example that we heard on that is we heard a real concern about, I came here with certain expectations about what my tuition is, and if now it's changing significantly, I didn't plan for that. And that's a very, very valid comment, and we heard that early on. So um, in the case where we made more significant tuition increases, that's where we made a very conscious decision that if you were already here and you made a decision to come here based on what you expected tuition to be, we shouldn't change that. So that as much as possible, a principal saying, we're we're, going to let you know in advance and you're going to make the decision, your decision, with that information. Okay, so back to international tuition increases. What would you say to an international student who does pay a significant amount more in tuition about increases to international tuition while domestic tuition stays relatively similar? So I would say a couple things. First of all, I would say that our government policy, so that's where we get a lot of our funding, um, we get, you know, um, half fund, half of our funding comes from the province, and that doesn't even include all the money that they provide us for capital dollars. So they provide a lot of the funding for our buildings. And where they got that money from is people paying taxes. And if you're an international student, your parents didn't pay taxes. You didn't pay taxes. And so you haven't contributed to that tax base that has provided that those funding. So that's the first thing is it's very much that um, we receive our funding to be able to provide education for domestic students, not for international students. So that's the first thing I would say. And I think that's probably in terms of that differential in, in rates, that's very much the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one would be, and how do we make sure that, you know, we, we don't want to be thinking about, you know, international students as making money for us. On the other hand, we do need to be getting enough dollars that we can deliver those quality programs. And so the additional dollars that we get from international students, some of those, not all of them, but some of them will go to support the unique needs of international students. So even with uh, recent increases, we're going to be putting some additional investments. We've heard that international students sometimes have more challenges getting co-op placements. So saying, well, do we need to add a person that will focus on finding co-op places for international students? And in fact, if you asked an international student and said, well, would you rather pay a little bit more and we'll do more work and hopefully be able to get you a better co-op job and you'll be able to make some money? 
they might say, gee, that's a good investment. Um, or things like healthcare. Um, as I said, English is the second language, the international. So, so there are some things that there is a higher cost and it's an higher investment. And if we want those students to be successful, we need to do that. But we also need to make sure that there isn't government funding coming in so that needs to pay for all of those. Plus, again, that quality of an education, that making sure that we do that quality. And then the other thing we do look at is we look at um, comparator universities and we say, what are they charging? Assuming that we have needs and that if we can make more investments, we can improve the quality of our, of our education and our programs. Why would we want to be the cheapest, particularly if we've got a need? And then I guess the last thing is that, you know, recognize that for some students, it is going to be a challenge having increased intuition, but there's going to be other students that it isn't. So do we lower the rates for everybody? Or do you charge a consistent rate that's, you know, comparable to other universities? And then you provide some additional dollars that are available for bursaries or scholarships specifically for international students. So we've done that recently. We've, we've increased the rates. We've increased the dollar amounts that are available for international students. Can you give any insight on how to balance the need for UVic to make money to run and the fact that UVic is an academic institution first and foremost? So two things. One is the only reason we need money, we, we want money, is so that we can invest. And I guess the other thing I will say is being at a university as long as I have, and you know, particularly this university, we will always have way more good ideas than we have money. So it's always a question of picking the priorities than saying, oh, gee, we made way too much money this year. We will never be in that case because we will always say, here's these great ideas. Here's this, here's this way that we can improve um, services to students. Here's this great new program that we can launch. Here's this research opportunity. Um, so it's not, it's, I don't think it's ever the case that we would actually say, oh, yay, we've added to the bottom line this year. What would you say is the most difficult thing for your department to balance? For my department in particular, so finance and operations, obviously the university doesn't exist to have finance and operations. The university exists to uh, teach students, provide learning and do research. So it's always that balance. So for me, um, you know, on the one hand I say, well, you know, why would we put some more money into cutting the grass? On the other hand, if we stop doing any of that, then students won't want to come here because it'll look ugly and you know they won't we won't be contributing to that extraordinary environment so it's finding that right right balance um that you know how do you make sure that you do those investments so that you're really focusing on the things that are important and that are consistent with your mission but at the same time recognizing that if you don't have some of those other things to go with it you're going to fail all right so finally <laughs> What do you want UVic students to know about how the finances and operations department is run? I think that we take very seriously that they, they're making the biggest investment in the university. They're, they're coming here, they're spending their time, they're spending their money, and we want to make sure that we're taking that investment and using it as prudently as possible. Um, and I know sometimes it might not look like that, <laughs> but that we do very much take that into consideration and that's what we try really hard to do. That was a conversation with Gail Goril, Vice President of Finance and Operations. Next up, we sit down with a hard-working lab assistant to learn more about their perspective of UVic as a business. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Taking comfort from the water.
You in the Ring is supported by Capital Six Theaters. Every month, Capital Six features an independent film series, which often includes a Q&A. Head over to 8058 Street to buy tickets. Phone the movie hotline, 778-265-7988, to see what's playing, or visit capital6.ca. You're tuned into You in the Ring. I'm Max Collins, filling in for regular host Salma Asan. In this episode, we're focusing on UVic not only as an academic institution, but as a lucrative business. Now that we've talked to someone who is a part of making financial decisions at UVic, let's take a moment to talk to someone who is directly affected by those decisions. Among some of the lowest earning workers at the University of Victoria are those who are involved in cooperative programs many of which are involved with the sciences, technology, engineering, and mathematics departments. Some of the research that these co-op assistants do is groundbreaking, but according to Alberto, a former co-op chemistry student, the compensation between working as a co-op student and as, say, an assistant in a lab outside of an academic setting is very different. We caught up with Alberto to learn more about his experience as a paid co-op student at the University of Victoria. All right, let's get right into it. Um, so Alberto, thanks for coming in. Um, can you tell us about your past or present position at UVic and like, give us a brief summary of your responsibilities? Certainly. Uh, currently right now I'm a student studying biomedical engineering, but in the past I was working as a co-op student uh, for one of the chemistry professors at UVic. Um, my list of responsibilities was a, was a list of tasks that I had to complete within one semester. Specifically, I had to develop an analytical procedure for detecting certain chemical compounds uh, that were produced in a uh, electrochemical experiment, uh, and then test that procedure vigorously, and later on test the procedure on with actual experimental samples and determine if uh, there's any experimental data that could be extracted from the experiments. And was there? Uh, yeah, there was some in a lot of interesting findings. Um, most of my work was more analytical based, so I just had to develop the procedure and just make sure that it would work and that pe people that, uh, future students that wanted to test samples uh, in similar experiments could get that work, uh, could get the same, could get proper results. Thank you. Um, and do you feel as though the compensation that you got is competitive with other schools or companies that you could work for? Um, the compensation I didn't feel was particularly compe uh, competitive, um, mainly because the research was funded by the government, which who gave UVic the money, and then UVic uh, compensated me for my work. Um, but this line of re this line of research work has doesn't have much of um, uh, presence in the industry sector, so mainly all the work that I do here would is more more or less academic based, and all that stuff is not generally competitive in terms of compensation. Yeah. And just looking across campus, um, UVic's top earners have an annual income of $400,000 or more. Uh, how do you feel this compares to your compensation? Uh, I think my compensation was fair. A lot of the top earners at UVic are 
head heads of departments and they're typically being paid more because um, on top of uh, doing research and, and lecturing they also coordinate uh, coordinate the department as well as manage uh, different professors uh, for their work and for and for the research they do and, and advise different people so the top earners typically have actually a lot more responsibilities than say compared to an associate uh, and as a recently recently hired professor who would only be maybe tasked to to lecturing one course thank you um, and if you had the same position you had at UVic but you weren't in a university setting um, how do you think the compensation would go do you think it would be comparable um, if I was being compensated the same in industry um, I feel like the compensation would be very fair I have a lot of friends that have done research work but in the industry sector and were getting paid a lot less than I was. Uh, most often researchers in in the industry sector, if they don't have a master's or a PhD, actually end up getting maybe a few dollars above the minimum wage. So, uh, but I was being paid very uh, decently well for, for, for in terms of compensation. Thanks. Um, what aspects of working for UVic appeals to you? What's nice working about UVic is um, I feel like the environment here in terms of working in the I could like research and academic side, it's a lot more relaxed and it's not uh, not everyone is so uptight about being professional and uh, having to uh, respect all the hierarchies of powers between different professors and such and I feel more that you can comfortably ask people for help and not be worried about being cri criticized compared to say in an industry an industry scenario and in where if you ask your supervisor a very redundant or silly question they might judge you for it and they might um, you know they might start questioning your competency and likewise like you can't you know you can't reach out to say uh, a higher a higher manager for help be because they probably won't even know who you are at that point so it was like the size of it and also just ability to go and ask people for help or for, for to chat about things yeah it's it's nice that you can t like you can you can message other professors and claim and you know tell them like what you're doing and ask for their opinions or for their help um, and most m most times are actually be more than happy to give their opinions or their thoughts and whatever so it's it's a very it's a very relaxed environment I find awesome well the next question you've already maybe answered half of it but what are the best and worst parts about your position um, the best part of this position was definitely um, having like feeling like I was actually having like good responsibilities like um, like my responsibilities were to complete certain tasks and uh, that would take a long time to develop so they were actually they felt like they were bigger projects uh, and it, and the and doesn't really compare to say like in a industry setting where I would typically just be given like a daily or weekly assignments and it would be something like clean all the glassware or make 300 samples of this one compound and that's it like the, there's really not it, that would not feel as I contribute as much say um, compared to what I contributed to the school um, but the worst part about this about the position I'd say was uh, the amount of self-studying I had to do um, because a lot of the stuff I had to learn for this uh, position uh, had to learn when I started my work term and it took several days of me reading textbooks and papers to actually understand what was even happening and it was stuff I wasn't very well versed in beforehand.
So going back to compensation, I suppose, do you feel that researchers deserve more funding than what you were given? Uh, researchers that are currently uh, that are grad students, um, I think should receive more compensation. Um, I've talked to several grad students and they have complained about how they don't they feel like they're not adequately compensated for the amount of research they do and and there has been recent um, you know recent protests about how the school has increased fees for school for grad students but decreased the pay that they would give them for either TAing or RAing jobs and likewise there's some grad students that um, do research and with much more hazardous materials um, where if you if you mess up, it's it's it could put you in grave danger compared to say you know like s someone else doing work that's that doesn't really if they mess up it's it's not as big of a screw up compared to the people who work with very dangerous materials they they f they're getting paid the same but one is safer than the other so it's not really fair in my books. Yeah, fair enough. So this episode is on Uvic as a business. Um, in your opinion, is Uvic the business? the same as UVic the school and why or not why not I feel like they are the same um, mainly because UVic is UVic adds like both like the educational learning side to it as well as uh, acts like a business in the sense like you you put in work and they give you money for it and and then the school side is uh, you put in money and then they teach you and give you knowledge for things so I feel like those two sayings actually are kind of the same based on the fact that UVic is a, is a um, university institute and it's not solely just a business or a school, but they're combined, like they're combined entity. Thanks very much. We were just listening to a conversation with Alberto, former UVic co-op student, about his perspective of UVic as a business. Thanks for listening to You in the Ring. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to hear more episodes like this one, head over to cfuvpodcasts.com or soundcloud.com slash cfuv. The theme you heard in this episode was composed and performed by Toe. This episode was produced by myself, Rachel Gardner, Dante Andre Kahan, and Maureen Chow. This program is created by our podcasting production team. If you'd like to get involved in spoken word programming here at UVic, you can find more information at cfuv.ca. You in the Ring cannot be created without the support of Capital Six Cinemas and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I'm Max Collins, filling in for Salma Isan. This is You in the Ring. Thanks for listening. is proudly supported by Capital Six Theatres. Get out of the house and see brand new movies with surround sound and first-class luxury seating on the big screen. Experience cinema how it was meant to be seen. Capital Six, the ultimate movie-going experience. Book tickets and see what's playing at capitalsix.ca.